What's good, devs? GDC 2021 is upon us. I hope to catch you all virtually. And I invite you to register and come through and support my first talk. It's a tech design panel entitled Avoid an Identity Crisis as a Technical Designer, moderated by me, alongside my peers, Anne Childan from Volition, Alicia Thayer from Crystal Dynamics, Alan Blaine from Bungie, Rusty Semsprot from Arcane Austin, and Jerome Perrant from WB Games Montreal. It goes live this Thursday morning, July 22nd, and will be live for Q&A immediately afterwards. While you're here, if you're not already following the show, please hit that follow button and feel free to recommend it to a fellow developer if you find this episode insightful so that we can grow our community. Out of Play Area, the Game Developers Podcast releases new episodes every other Monday on all podcast platforms and on YouTube. Now, hit my music. In episode 13 of Out of Play Area, we follow through with Doug Burton's nomination from way back in episode 1 and sit with our very first 3D artist, Corinne Scrivens, who is an art director at Polyarch in Seattle. We talk about how she paid her dues teaching herself the fundamentals, breaking in as a motion capture artist for Neversoft, doing character art for ArenaNet, working on amazing characters in Destiny 1 and 2 for Bungie, as well as being mindful to avoid common pitfalls that can catch any creative while sharing valuable advice for maintaining your portfolio and more. The show has a lot of content, so please check out the chapter times in the show notes below. Now, please welcome Corinne Scrivens. Let's start the show. Bienvenido, bienvenue, welcome to the Out of Play Area Podcast, a show by video game devs for game devs, where the guests open up one-on-one about their journey, their experiences, their views, and their ideas. No ads, no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer, John Diaz. Do you also have a PopCap figure of Suraya? I have my collection of characters that I worked on. I have... Uh, Suraya Hawthorne with Louis. With Louis, yeah. And then I have Amanda Holiday. And then this one's my favorite. I don't have a PopCat figure for Eris, so I got a rubber ducky. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is badass. Who makes that? I know Funko for the PopCat figures, but like... Tubbs? T-U-B-B-Z. I guess they have a series called Cosplaying Ducks. Oh, that's super cool. I'm the same way. I mean, it's different for gameplay designers. The only thing we get to do is buy game guides that have our mission kind of like laid out. And I have like post-it notes and those are what I usually show people, right? Like here's my quote unquote portfolio, right? Like here's my whole encounter or level or something like that. Much cooler to be able to buy actual physical figures of characters you've modeled. Because it's different, right? Because you create these things from concept in 3D and then someone runs with that digital version into like physical. Yeah, yeah. It's super neat. I still geek out over it. (laughs) Never lose that. I'm always surprised when people kind of lose that. Hey, so what are we drinking today? This This is in your honor. This was a great recommendation. I got my boba Thai iced tea with coconut milk. I want you to help me understand how do I properly enjoy these things. <laughs> I'm, I'm always just like, yes, the more sugary and sweet, the better. Well, the way you enjoy it is it comes with a giant straw. Yes, got it right yeah. here. And the straw is giant to be able to have the boba balls to fit like up there, basically. And then you see the little red tab on your lid. 
Uh -huh. That's if you want to drink the stuff on top separate. The type of drink that I got as well, I got a cocoa crema with a, a boba and red bean. And if you ever have opportunity, try the crema. It's pretty good. Boba shops aren't good at marketing it because I think it translates as like salty cheese foam, which doesn't Ooh. sound good. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's like a thicker, more delicious like whipped cream. <laughs> okay, fair. Yeah, and cheesy. Yeah. I mean, cream is always milk-based and cheese is a milk-based product, right? So it makes sense. It doesn't sound too crazy. Well, thank you, Corin. This is going to be a fun show. I want to cheers. This will, this will be my first boba tea I get to have in a long time. Oh, <laughs> in a long time. <laughs> cheers. You're the first artist on the show. Mm-hmm. So I definitely want to take advantage and, and learn all the things that I've taken for granted when I'm working in the office next to some awesome people that I've always been super jealous about how they have these gigantic like Wacom screens mm -hmm. as like a fourth or fifth monitor on their desk. <laughs> I want one of those, right? but I have no justification for it at all. It's funny that you say that because actually Danny, who I believe you know and interviewed, he actually got one recently because <laughs> <laughs> he, he wanted it for like drawing over levels and stuff. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. And I know once he sees a new pretty exciting toy, he's going to find the justification <laughs> for getting one. Yeah. I guess let's dive into there, right? In the artist's tool bag, what are the, the must-haves? Right? What are the devices you really need? What are those basic art skills that kind of make up the foundation of an artist? What are your go-to programs? Things like this. Yeah. So my, my background is in character art, and there's a whole bunch of different art background. So a lot of my advice will probably be more focused on character art, but it also applies to other disciplines as well. So like some of the, the basic skills that are good to have pretty much for any type of video game artist is like there's a lot of like basic art skills that traditional artists have, like understanding composition, understanding color. Those are really important. And then for character artists in particular, knowing about anatomy and life drawing is really really good also like depending on the type of character artist there's also like animal anatomy it's like a whole other thing animal life drawing and so having good drawing and painting skills actually are, are really good to have and they, they help build those base skills so the, the base skills base art skills that's the foundation that everything kind of builds up off of and then on top of that as a video game artist most likely what you're doing is you're working in 3d and so for modelers, which is, that's kind of what I do, to super simplify what I do, <laughs> is uh, we take ideas and images of what we want in the game, and then we go ahead and we make those 3D and we make those real, and we put them in the game. And part of the things, the skills that are good is like sculpture skills are, are really good. And the sculpture skills kind of come out through like program like ZBrush, which is kind of like the industry standard. And then there's also... Everyone uses 3D programs, whether that's there's 3ds Max, there's Maya, and then now like it's really exciting actually if you're trying to get into art now because like now we have Blender. <laughs> yeah, Blender is the one I'm teaching myself just because it's free and, and easily accessible. Yeah. Yeah, and it's great, and there's tutorials like everywhere for it, and it's free. Great resource for like learning how like the basics of like 3D modeling and how it works. And and there's actually like, I, I haven't heard too many game studios, but I have friends that are in the film industry and they actually are using like Blender in like real studios. It's official, it's legit. Yeah, it's legit. And I, I wonder if as time goes on, it'll become more and more a part of the official like industry going forward, which 
will be neat because it'll help remove those barriers of entry. For sure. You know, like anybody, when we're comfortable in our own little wheelhouse and we have the tools that we've worked on over the years, it's hard to get us to change or adopt something new unless we absolutely have to. I'm curious to get your story on it because it feels like you came in at the right time where ZBrush, it was another tool that you learned and and, and taught yourself. But I know of a bunch of artist friends that are not... (laughs) being comfortable or eager to adopt a new tool in Blender. However, mm-hmm. when they do, they see the magic, they see the appeal. It's like anything foreign, right? Like it's not as yucky as I thought it was going to be, right? Like, oh, this is actually mm-hmm. nice. It's inviting and friendly and it is kind of intuitive. This once you get over the learning curve or the difference yeah. of how they do things. I think I totally get what you're saying. There's this thing where you get really used to working in a program and mm-hmm. it's point where because when you're working in the program there's all these shortcuts all the stuff where it just becomes muscle memory and you're not even thinking about how you do it and so this thing that happens which is really funny because I've I've had to do this before is if you switch a 3d program it's funny because you you feel really competent and you're like I know what I'm doing and then the moment you switch a 3d program they all have like different ways of like rotating a mesh navigating all different shortcuts and it always feels like to me when you like when you switch fps games they all have different controls Mm -hmm. and i don't know how this happens but at least for me every time i switch a game i end up throwing a grenade when i mean to punch (laughs) (laughs) and that's what it feels like to to switch between but i'm glad you brought it up because actually that is kind of like an important skill to have as a 3d artist in the game industry because like the game industry moves pretty fast and it's constantly adding new programs and new workflows so there is a lot of like learning new things if you have the ability to like learn how to switch between programs or like learn new programs that just kind of gives you a leg up so yeah heck yeah like anything right like the more engines you can navigate, whether that's Unreal, Unity, or something proprietary, or even if you're an engineer, right, being able to know or keep up to date with C++, a different scripting language, Lua, Python, C Sharp, right? It just makes you a better all-around creator. Like, nothing can stop you or slow you down. There's only a finite amount of ways of doing things, really, right? And so as you flex the muscle memory a bit, make it stretch, pretty soon, usually, unless, you know, you, you got something like the are coming in your face uh, <laughs> nothing can really surprise you yeah that's a really good point because I remember hearing that as a student and being kind of intimidated because as a student you take so long to learn the one program it's like oh my goodness yeah. <laughs> like when you learn the basics of one it gets easier to switch to a new one for sure yeah ZBrush took the industry by storm it felt like like once ZBrush came out and artists started going into it there was there was no turning back and there was nothing else anymore I felt like it definitely changed how we create art in the game industry and I I guess I was fortunate enough when I was jumping into the industry was just when that was taking off so I was learning at the same time that the people in the industry were learning how to use it (laughs) it's all about timing the thing about game art in general is is the whole thing of like you're working in like extreme constraints because everything in in video games is live like the moment you hit an input the player does the thing And to make that happen on the technological side, like everything has to be very cheap. (laughs) Yes, cheap like computationally, right? Like, you know, your your, your console or computer only has a finite amount of resources, triangles that it can crush and render and draw to the screen, right? And so like, how do you minimize that so you can get more on screen? 
Exactly. And so like a video game art in particular, you're trying to solve a puzzle, basically. Mm. You're, you're trying to pull off this magic trick of you're working within all these crazy constraints and you're trying to produce a product that like people look at it and they don't realize you're working under constraints. And so like what ZBrush did when it, it became a part of the industry was it, it gives even more firepower to like back up that illusion. <laughs> so right now I'm looking at your Hawthorne model from your art station. Mm -hmm. So as I look at this grayscale model, uh, when I see a high poly model with original head, is mm -hmm. that purely built in ZBrush? Like a quick overview of how the process works usually is you, we create a high poly model. We call it high poly because this model, we don't have to worry about the computational li limitations at all. <laughs> we don't have to worry about the game engine. It's like working in clay. Like we create a sculpture and we get all the forms right and we get everything like feeling right from there. And then on top of that, we create the low poly model. And this is the model that's actually gonna go into game. And it has to fit within those constraints of like how many triangles can I use? For characters in particular, it's like the geometry has to like line up in a certain way so it'll deform right. So yeah. when you animate, you, the elbows bend right and the knees bend right. So the general workflow now is you create this high poly, create a low poly, and then there's this process that happens. Oh, with low poly, you unwrap it. And unwrap unwrapping it. is when it's like the best way I heard described is like, it's like a map compared to a globe. A map is a globe flattened out, right? Mm -hmm. And then once you got that, there's this process that we call baking. And it's you take the low poly model and you bake the information from the high poly model into a texture, into just the image. And then there's this type of image that's called a normal map. Yeah. And what that does is it takes all the surface information of like how the light bounces off the surface of the high poly model, where you can have as many triangles as you want. And it turns that into an image that you apply to the low poly model. So now you have, it looks like it's high poly, but it's not, it's fitting within all the constraints that you that we have to work within. This is awesome. I'm getting a master class. I'm, I'm touching on a lot of things that I've overlooked over the years or that I haven't had to worry about as a, as a designer. I get the benefit of playing around, looking at your art station, and I definitely plan on linking it in the show notes for other people to have a look. When you and I were talking before this, you mentioned how for an artist, something you learned was that it's, it's really all about your portfolio. Mm -hmm. How do you use your art station? How do you keep your portfolio up to date? Or you know, how has it served you? That was a very important lesson that I learned early on. It is all about your portfolio. I have to admit, I am not the best with updating my portfolio. <laughs> what I should be doing is as I'm working on stuff, it's so easy to like have these deadlines and just be like, okay, I finished this thing. I have to go to the next thing and just like keep moving forward and creating because that, that to me is the fun part. But it's it's also equally important like as you finish a thing to be like okay cool now's the time where i take all the really nice high resolution renders of everything one of the things i learned throughout my career that kind of what kind of surprised me is like that does take <laughs> that can take a lot of time to like make sure like to get the optimal shot and the optimal lighting and like to present everything in the best light. That also takes time and it also takes a lot of work, but it's actually really important because your portfolio, like you're saying, is super important because 
for artists in the game industry. That's how we get jobs, basically. <laughs> I remember when I was in college, one of the best advice I got from one of my professors was he, he told us that uh, our grades did not matter. It was all about portfolio. And at the time, I, I did not believe him. Because <laughs> sure, sure. I was like, how does that make sense? Like, what? <laughs> but it's so true. Like, now being in the game industry, like having applied to jobs, like having to build on my portfolio, to, and also being on the other side of like looking at people's portfolios and looking at candidates for jobs. For artists, for art positions, it's a way for companies to look at what you can do. And from that, they're figuring out if they think that you can do the job. And if you have those art skills, like the base art skills of like composition, color, anatomy, and also like the technical skills of like, do they know how to low poly model? Do they know how to bake maps? Do they have experience like working with a rig? Like stuff like that as well, as well as like, have they created the type of content that we're going to create as well? So those are all things to keep in mind on the portfolio. And an important thing I learned as a student, which is like totally true, is it doesn't matter where you are, like everyone should have a portfolio because the portfolio should just be showing where you are currently and the, the amount of work that you have. So even if you're just starting out, like portfolio sounds like a scary, intimidating, like, <laughs> Sure. Game, but like just organize the best of your work and then post that line that's your portfolio and as you go you're updating pieces and you're just like replacing pieces as you get stronger ones like polishing up old pieces to like get them back up to the bar and it's a continual work in progress that's so important to remember and keep in mind right that it's easy to get intimidated or overwhelmed by oh i want to have all these different pieces in my portfolio and really you know the expectations are hey let me know where you are at so i know if you fit the role right you know mm -hmm. teams are always looking for junior associate artists to bring in to mold right to teach to train and at the same end of the spectrum studios are also generally looking for very senior people that can take on a character or direct an entire theme or environment, right? And so just to keep that in mind, is there a kind of like an unwritten agreement with studios that artists just get to update their portfolios with assets that they're building on a project or how does that work? That is such a great question because I, I really wondered about it before I got into the industry. And it's an interesting challenge because, as I'm sure you know, <laughs> being a developer, like when you're working on a project before it ships, you usually can't show stuff mm -hmm. until it ships. And so for artists, it puts us in this interesting position of if we happen to be looking for a job before we ship, or even there's also the scenario of you did all this awesome work for a project and it got canceled. So yeah. it's never going to ship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so what I, I see people do is basically people will have their public portfolio. And that's basically their art station, their website, where they put all the stuff that they can put online. And then for the stuff that they're currently working on or work that they think is really good, but they, they can't really show because the project got canceled, they'll usually put that into a private portfolio. And uh. so... A lot of times when you see people applying, you'll get a link to their public portfolio, a link to their private portfolio, along with a password. <laughs> Got it. Yes, I have seen that. Um, yeah, there's just kind of an understanding throughout the industry that, like, that's going to happen because, I mean, it's people's livelihoods. <laughs> so, for sure. For sure. Yeah. This is awesome. 
I've always been a little bit jelly from the design standpoint on all the projects that I've not been able to ship. And like, man, I have some sweet paper designs or systems or things like that, right? And they're just going to forever live on those hard drives and in my head, right? Like, oh, hey, you want me to do the thing for you? You're paying for what's in my head. (laughs) (laughs) There's another level or aspect of a portfolio, and that's presenting the art. Mm -hmm. And so that that was something interesting to me. Like, I would have thought that the assets kind of speak for themselves, but that's not necessarily 100% true. It's nuanced. (laughs) (laughs) Like everything. Part of what the portfolio does is it shows that you have the basic art skills, shows you have technical skills, shows that you can do what the studio is looking for. Most important thing is knowing that they can make the asset itself, but then also do they have the artistic eye to know like how to present it in the best light, which for modelers, to your point, that means that you're actually working on and learning skills that are probably outside of your day-to-day job to help improve your portfolio. For Polyarch, I wasn't doing any lighting or anything like that, but to really get the 3D models, like my characters, to shine in my portfolio, you kind of got to have a basic understanding of lighting to like really present them because a good character in bad lighting is is not going to look good. (laughs) One billion percent. So anybody that's done Blender tutorials has probably done the little donut and coffee. Oh, the donut, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And, And that one, I was rendering it out and I couldn't understand why the hell was so flat. It didn't have the detail that it looked like it had in my scene. And that was really it. I had to dial in my lighting just right before I rendered. And so to your point, yeah, it's a huge difference between even like when you look at old generation games like PS2, Xbox era compared to like 360, PS3 and beyond, right? It's the lighting really came into play. And then you had all those kind of normal maps and all that. There's a lot of skill. Lighting. Lighting. And- <laughs> I, I know I know. lighting is its own complete thing. I've seen a lot of job descriptions that are specifically asking for lighting artists, right? Like we need lighting artists. That's a thing. That's a specialty. Basically everything in art you can go really deep in and specialize in and it's its own job and career, it feels like. But yeah, lighting. There's also like the rendering too, getting the settings just right to get like the right image of your piece and then knowing like the different programs you can use to like present your piece in the best light. Oh, this is something else that I learned. It was originally when I was in college and I was first putting together my portfolio, I was very much like, okay, I can only show like what's either in the program that I made it in or in the engine and anything else is like cheating. What I learned was basically like, that's not true. You present your asset in the best possible way. So that means (laughs) taking it into like a non-game engine renderer to like render it. You you do that. Or even like... (laughs) You heard it here first. (laughs) (laughs) So let's dive into your experience in this crazy wild industry, Corinne. You had a pretty kick-ass first-time internship. I'd love to learn more about that. (laughs) In college, I was doing the thing where it was like, I'm about to graduate soon. I know I probably need an internship because that's the thing everyone talks about that makes it easier to get a job. And so I was trying to figure that out when one of the alumni from my school, California State University of Fullerton, which is a state school, I knew there was like Full Cell and I know there was like DigiPen and all these schools that would teach me exactly what I wanted. But I had heard at that point from professionals like, it's all about your portfolio. So it was like, okay, the professionals are saying this. Yeah. I'm going to believe them 
because my school is actually focused on animation. Mm. So it's a pretty good animation and storyboarding school. It's not as well known for video games. You mentioned that most graduates typically end up going into film production. Yeah. Because it's right near like all the Hollywood film studios and everything. Yeah, like Rainier, uh, like Disney Studios, Rainier DreamWorks. Like a lot of my classmates, they're storyboard artists for like Nickelodeon or DreamWorks. <laughs> Makes sense, yeah. It's a pretty good place to be. So I was one of the few odd ones out that wanted to go into the video game industry. <laughs> was there any particular thing that was calling to you at the time, right? To be like, oh, this game or this drawing or this screenshot or this experience? Well, I played a lot of games. Like I loved video games. That definitely helped. When I was in college, I knew that I wanted to do art. Like, I had that figured out. I was like, okay, I know I want to do art. I'm going to try it out and see if I can make a living doing this thing. And then as I went, I figured out, like, okay, I actually really like making art on the computer. I really like making it digitally. And then as I kept going, it was like, oh, wait, people make video games. Like, that's (laughs) a career. I can do that. And it was like, ah. (laughs) How did you come to that realization? I always enjoy hearing how people come to that. I think part of it was this internship, actually. This alumni who who reached out, he actually reached out from Neversoft Entertainment, which at the time I was like, oh man, Tony Hawk. (laughs) Like, that's sweet. And he was reaching out about an internship. And not only was it an internship, it was a paid internship, which was like unheard of in the art department. (laughs) (laughs) Those are rare. (laughs) Usually it means free work for the company, usually for experience. Yeah. Everyone wants to be an artist, right? So like, I was like, oh, that's cool. That's right. Like people do this. People make video games. And at the time I was thinking about it, I was like, I love playing video games. At that point, I had been through animation classes. And animation classes are interesting because what happens is you do a whole bunch of work for like a few seconds of animation. And then the people that become animators, they know that they're animators when they see that animation. They feel like, ah, (laughs) that's it. And so like, I had gone through that process. And I had felt that ping of like, oh, that's awesome. But I also felt the ping of like, that is so much work. (laughs) So so I knew I wanted to do something like that, where I was creating something for people to like enjoy and Mm. consume. And I knew video games was the option, but I I didn't know if it was the right fit for me. And I, I was trying to figure that out. So when the internship opportunity came up, I was like, okay, I need an internship. To get experience, right? Yeah, it's a great opportunity. So I remember I actually sat out one of my classes to like work on like the application and stuff. And my classmates were kind of teasing me about it. But it worked out really well because I got the internship. (laughs) So it was just an application and you had to submit your portfolio. So the interesting thing about this internship was It was in the game industry, but the catch was it was in motion capture. So it wasn't in the field that I directly wanted to go to, but the idea was that I could join in. I would be doing this motion capture work. I'd be learning a lot about motion capture, which is pretty cool. But then also I'd get opportunity to learn from like the other disciplines in the studio as well, which made it super appealing. And so I think what actually got me that internship, because I filled out the application, sent it in, and then we had a phone interview and 
I think it was my extracurriculars that got me that because we had founded this video game design club basically and because I was able to talk about projects I had done as extracurricular not part of my schoolwork but like making video game projects on the side I think that's what got them and so I got the internship I I did have to figure out the semantics of it because it was during my senior semester so I was working on all the final projects and everything And so my schedule was like every other day was the classes and every other day was the internship. But the internship was during like completely opposite directions. Like my school was in Fullerton. The internship was in uh, Thousand Oaks. And then I lived in Holly County in the middle. And because Thousand Oaks is on the other side of downtown LA from where I live, it's insane. But the first commute I had was like four hours each way. Oh my gosh, that's a full-time job going and coming. Yeah, but I I was excited about this opportunity to learn more and to see if this was the industry that I wanted to be in. So I was like, you know what, it's worth it. I'm going to do it. It did a crazy thing for my sleep schedule too, because like I had like eight hours every night to sleep, but it was shifted by four hours every other day, which as I found out, the human body doesn't work that way. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It doesn't just like random changes in its sleep schedule. So yeah, that was a lot, but it turned out to be an awesome, awesome opportunity because not only was it Neversoft, this company that I used to play their video games and I was super excited to be there. It was was also working on a game that I actually liked playing, which was Rock Band. So it was really neat. So I got hired on as a motion capture intern for Guitar Hero Metallica, basically. But this was back when they were churning out a whole bunch of Guitar Heroes. (laughs) Yeah, it was like two a year sometimes, I think. Yeah. And so they were actually working on a whole bunch of Guitar Heroes at once. And Neversoft also, I found out, was the mocap department for Activision. So we also worked on, like, mocap shoots for, like, Call of Duty, too, Mm -hmm. which is, like, pretty neat. In your job as a motion capture artist, you're coordinating the performance artists, getting them all outfitted and storing and archiving and categorizing the data and labeling it. Like, what's the the hands-on part of what you were doing? So it wasn't even that glamorous. Most of the job was cleaning up motion capture data. Oh, okay. You were literally cleaning up the data. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because motion capture records all these markers on the body in space. And because a lot of the motion capture we were doing was performers performing. Musicians smashing drums, air guitar. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot of like cleaning up motion data for like drummers and stuff. Because drummers, I found out, they move so fast. Motion capture can't capture them. So there's a lot of like rebuilding their arm data to capture how they're drumming but I did get to help out with shoots as well on the side which is really neat because it's basically just watching musicians perform (laughs) in mocap suits you're getting private concerts at your job yeah (laughs) it was cool and Neversoft was like a crazy introduction to the game industry too how so my first day I got there after my four-hour commute (laughs) I got there early and I was like, yeah, I'm ready to go. And then (laughs) I went over to my desk and I was like, okay, cool. And I'm like putting out my stuff and I'm all pumped. And then as I go to my keyboard to like set up my keyboard, there's a pair of drumsticks there. And I'm like, oh, that's random. What's Because there was a ton of rock band drum kits and guitars everywhere. So I was like, oh, okay, this must be like someone wanted real drumsticks for the drums. So I picked it up. 
And I looked at them, and they're signed by Van Helen. <laughs> wow. And I was just like, oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I went to him, and I was like, did you know that these drumsticks that were signed by Van Helen, they're just left on my desk? And they're like, oh, yeah, you just, like, throw them over there in the pile. <laughs> it's just like, what the? Yeah, right. Like, that should be on a display somewhere. Or if this is a welcome gift, you know, that's pretty cool, too. I should have. <laughs> but I think I was, like, in too much shock. I was like, I can't touch these. They've been signed. <laughs> like, take them away from me. But all the walls were, like, covered with, like, they had skateboards signed from like Tony Hawk and all the famous skaters. And then they had a bunch of like guitars and like instruments all over the studio signed by famous musicians. I was just like a starstruck college student working at this place being like, oh my God. They even had a, they had a full half life there too. Indoor half life. Yeah. It was just, just like so crazy. And the really great thing about the opportunity was it showed me that like I did want to be in the game industry. Like it was cool like being around people that were passionate about the same thing I was passionate about. Although I will say it <laughs> it was a funny first experience cuz it set my expectations for the game industry all like a little <laughs> a little high. <laughs> Because they had this thing where every day they would put out all these different menus for different restaurants. And you would go over there and you look at a menu and you would just like put something down that you wanted and they would come deliver it and it was free. Which, you know, free food as a college student. I was like, heck yeah. <laughs> oh, man, yeah. That's a, that's a huge perk. Yeah. And people would order like full pizzas <laughs> and take them home for dinner. And it was just like, oh, this is amazing. The craziest part, which like looking back, I'm like, oh man, this is crazy, is I was an intern, lowly intern, just there for the semester and just working. But I happened to be there the semester where they're going to ha have their holiday party. And their holiday party was just crazy because I guess it was tradition there. Every year they would fly out the studio to Las Vegas. <laughs> My goodness, the whole studio gets flown out to Las Vegas. I mean, mind you from LA, that's a, you know, hour or so flight, but still. The crazy thing is the whole studio plus one Ooh. and they had reserved the Hard Rock Cafe and everyone got a free fancy hotel room and they had this legit like cover band who's called Steel Panthers. And I found out later they actually are like a big cover band. Like they have a big following. Sure. <laughs> and they flew them out for the party to perform there in Las Vegas. And it was just the craziest thing. Cause like I was a lowly intern and they were like, hey, by the way, you know, we have this holiday party. You're gonna come and oh, who's gonna be your plus one? And I was just like, wait, what? <laughs> You live in the good life of the gaming industry, Corinne. Welcome in. And that was my first impression was <laughs> free food and like flying people out to Las Vegas for parties. And I was just like, whoa, is this what the game industry is? You know, you can negotiate. Everybody has their own negotiability for their contracts and the terms of their employment, right? People want different things, right? Some people want higher paychecks. Some people want health care, things like this. Other people want, I want food. I want snacks. I want to be fed. That's all I want. Just pay me in food. As I got more experience in the game industry, it was like, Oh, wait, it's not all like this. <laughs> it's still awesome. Like, I still love it. But I was like, oh, okay. You at least okay. have snacks and beverages and soft drinks available. That That's true. And that is 
super awesome. <laughs> Whenever I take anyone outside of the game studio to a game studio I'm working on, it reminds me of how lucky we have it because they're always like, you have fridges full of free drinks? Like, what? <laughs> Amazon's game studios is like 2% of the entire company, right? And in this one particular building, we took up like three or four floors plus Twitch. Twitch is special. Twitch gets catered food, but that was always their company culture. And so they got to keep that when they became part of Amazon. Now for the game studios, we do have fully stocked fridges, fully stocked snacks and pantry and all that. But the rest of Amazon does not operate that way. And so whenever people would come pick me up or come over to visit, when I would go have lunch with other people outside of games, they were super jealous to be like, hold on, why do you guys have food? Why don't we have food? And I was like, hey, guys, you, what you got to understand about game developers is we're used to having snacks and soft drinks on demand 24-7. And that's a thing that they quickly learned when they were trying to recruit game developers to come aboard Amazon. They're like, no, 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 <laughs> you need to have this. This is not a question. And it's funny because I started off there with the free food and the holiday party in Vegas. And then like where I am now, it's funny because it's more of a startup. We have like, we don't have snacks. <laughs> we bring in our own drinks and stuff. But like, just go back to what you're talking about earlier about like, hey, some people ask for free food and drinks. Some people ask for like healthcare. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's priorities change as you get more experience is all I'm saying. <laughs> For sure, especially when you're, you got to be scrappy and, you know, use your headcount and, and resources intelligently, right? Yeah. I think equity is a big part, typically. So that changes the perspective, right? They'll be like, hey, hold on, <laughs> this is my money as well. So do we have to spend it on snacks or can we, you know, spend it on making the game better or something like that? So this is in LA and mm -hmm. then lo and behold, you are offered a contract or you're offered a, a permanent position once your internship was done. I got offered, it was a test position which again, not, not what I want to do, but I, I do know that there's a way a lot of people like get their foot in the door in the game yeah. industry and make their way in. And it was uh, testing rock band, which I liked rock band, so it felt like, like fun. And so, yeah, when the position ended, because I said the whole time that they knew that they didn't have enough work to keep us on after. But because they had liked how I worked and they knew I was a hard worker, they were like, hey, if you want, you can take this test position. And basically it's a way to like get your foot in the door and stay in the studio and you could still be around the disciplines and the stuff that you want to eventually do. But the thing was my boyfriend at the time, who's my husband now, he had actually just gotten an internship at Microsoft. Up here in Redmond? Yeah, up here in Redmond, Washington, which is, you know, a different state than California. <laughs> Only geographically. Yeah. <laughs> so my last semester, when I was doing the crazy work commute and internship and my schooling, my husband was basically up in Washington at the time, and he was doing his internship. And so we're dating um, long distance. But the plan was, after I finished my schooling and I had that all good to go, he had actually proposed to me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the plan was to get married and then basically move up here with him. And so in addition to like finishing out all my finals, having this crazy commute, doing the internship, I also had a wedding to plan, <laughs> but it, it turned out good. I, I basically figured out how to time box. <laughs> Makes me laugh now, but I was like, okay, 
after my finals and after my internship, that's when I start planning the wedding. <laughs> and I only gave myself like a month or two to plan, which is like crazy, but like it turned out really well. I think like a lot of people told me they really liked our wedding. We we actually got married at I don't know if you know Knott's Berry Farm. Oh, of course I know Knott's Berry Farm. I know it in like Halloween times. That's when I know Knott's Berry Farms. Yeah, so that was where we had our first date. And then we found out that apparently they run weddings there. Because apparently there's, like, hidden away on their, like, campus or their area is, like, this really cute little chapel. And that's where we got married. And then we had rock band at the reception. And then afterwards, we all went to Knott's Berry Farm and rode (laughs) roller coasters. Hell yes. That's an awesome (laughs) wedding. I was joking before this. It's like... You just wanted to play life in extreme hardcore difficulty mode. And so now everything is easy. Yeah, that was a hard time because also that was like with little sleep. We're bulletproof in our 20s. Can't be fake. We're fine. It's so true. Did you get up to Washington and then look for work or were you able to line up something to move up to Washington? So yeah, had to turn down the job off from Neversoft. Moved up here, and I didn't have anything set up because I had spent all my time like finishing college and the internship and the wedding. So I was in this interesting position where I was in an entirely new state, entirely new area. Like I had built up a network of people and friends basically from college, but they're all from California and they all in the industry working and everything, but like no one was up in Washington. And because I went to a school that was mostly film-based anyway, there wasn't a lot of game people to like network with to begin with. And so I was up here and it was this interesting thing because the other thing about character art, pretty much like everyone wants to be a character artist. Like if you're a 3D modeler, there's a good chance you want to be a character artist. Highly sought after, yeah. which makes it highly competitive. And there's only so many roles like that available on any given team. So like high demand, low supply. Yes, very competitive, basically, right? So I'm in a new place. I don't know anyone. I'm trying to get this job that's highly competitive. And then the other thing was my school, it was great. It taught me a, a ton of the, the art basics, which is like important because it builds the foundation for everything else. But because they didn't have a dedicated game art track, I was teaching myself a lot of what I need to know. And I was learning this stuff back when like ZBrush and normal maps were just becoming a thing in the industry. And resources back then were like much harder to find. Like right now, if you want to learn how to 3D model, you like download Blender and you watch a YouTube video and you're hitting the ground running. But back then, it it was a lot harder. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I I can empathize 1 billion percent, right? Like I joke these days with people where I would say you don't need to go to college or that's not the only way to learn the skills you need to do the thing you want to do. But back then, for sure, we're talking like easily... 10, 15 years ago, all this information was not as readily available as it is today. And you really have to search hard to find the thing you want to learn. And in some cases, it's even harder. How did you figure out, A, what you needed to learn, and then B, like tracking it down? 
how did I learn what I needed to learn? That's a great question. Actually, that was another great bit of advice I got from professors from college was look at the position that you want to get, which as a student would be an intro position. Look at what they're asking for and then from that, write the dream resume that you wish you had when you applied for it and then use that as kind of the guide for what you're trying to do. And then the other thing that I expanded on that is it's also really good for figuring out what you want in your portfolio. Because like we mentioned earlier, it's all about the portfolio, right? So to figure out what I, I needed to do, I was looking at the entry positions to see what they're asking for. And then I also, what was super helpful was looking at the people that had that job and looking at their portfolio <laughs> to see like the level of work that I needed. That's a super solid pro tip is to look at the job that you want and then work backwards from there to be like, okay, this is what they're looking for. I'm going to learn how to build the piece and get it into my portfolio. I'm curious how you figured out who people were and then finding their portfolio. There are different forums that people could post on. And then you, you could kind of see the professionals there that were posting. Like Google, too, was a way. <laughs> You're kind of looking at, like, the name of the company and then the job title. You can find people's resume. Wow. Yeah, that's almost kind of like too obvious, right? Like it's like I, I, I never would have thought about that back then, right? To be like, okay, I want to work at the company. You know, like if we're taking Neversoft, for example, and hey, I want to be a character artist at Neversoft and Googling that and then seeing what comes back. Yeah. That's a good one. So yeah, I did that basically. And I, I could see that there, there are definitely gaps in the portfolio that I had from school. One thing I'd like to call out for anyone who wants to get into game art in the industry, school is great for teaching you the basics, but what it mostly does is it teaches you like general skills, so you kind of learn how to do a little bit of everything. But when you're applying for jobs, there are generalist jobs, a lot of the jobs want more specialized, and so then if you're applying to a character art position, you kind of want a character art portfolio, which if you're serious about it, it means taking time in addition to your schoolwork to like build up the portfolio that you need, basically. That's super valuable. Like I, on the design side, I keep two different resumes, one highlighting kind of system design, another one highlighting more like mission design or tech design or whatever that caters to the specific role you're looking for. Yeah. And to your point, I've also had different portfolios <laughs> where I cater it for the position. And it's, sometimes it's like the same work, but I, I change the order. So the most relevant uh, thing is like the first thing that's shown there. It's super, super useful to do that. Is that common? Like when you're reviewing portfolios, do you generally get through an entire portfolio or you see kind of one or two or three pieces and if you haven't found what you're looking for, you move on? Now there's ArtStation. So a lot of people send in their ArtStation. People also have websites, but generally what it is is they'll have like the thumbnails out and then I could do a quick scroll saying all the different things. And then if I'm interested in a particular character or a particular piece, I can click on it and then I could see the breakdown and, or like more details of that piece in particular. With images, it's easier to just like scroll through and see everything. Mm. <laughs> but it, it still is super important to think about the order of the portfolio because the first piece that's seen, that, that is a first impression. And I remember getting the advice that like you want to start really strong and you want to end strong. Strong, and you want to make sure the portfolio that you're using to apply to places is curated so it's your best work 
Mm -hmm. because you'll probably be judged by like the weakest work in there. Ah, that's interesting. That's something you wouldn't expect, right? Normally, right? You'd be like, hey, I have these amazing pieces and they're going to love these pieces and they'll overlook some of my younger pieces or older pieces. But you're saying that that's not necessarily true, that they will remember you by the piece that had the least love. Usually for portfolios that you use to apply for jobs, yeah, it's super curated. And if there's a portfolio where everything's amazing and then there's one piece that's like off, it won't lose you the job, but it'll kind of raise the question of, it's kind of the artistic eye and that artistic taste, right? It'll kind of raise the question of like, oh, did they not realize that this is not the same bar as the rest of their work? Oh, okay. So that, that's a way for you to kind of gauge their critical eye, that essential artistic eye to be like, they knew enough to put these in, but didn't know enough to take this out. And that's going to leave you kind of scratching your head and wanting to dig in more. Yeah. Super insightful. So you get up to Washington, you're looking for work. I guess you're working on your portfolio pieces or you're taking classes as well to round yourself out. Yeah. So I didn't have the portfolio yet. What I did was I figured out what I had to learn and I started learning it. I started researching on my own to figure out. These are things like what? Oh, like I didn't know what a normal map was. <laughs> mm, it was new at the time. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's not like now where you could just Google normal map and there's a description of it. That didn't exist at the time when I was trying to figure it out. But the job descriptions were requesting it specifically, right? To be like, hey, yeah. know how to normal map. And I knew it was a thing. It was one of the things that game companies were looking for. And I, I had taught myself a bunch up to that point, but I had this like knowledge gap and I was like, okay, I need to fill this. I need to start getting pieces in my portfolio that show that I know how to do this. And so what I did was I actually found an online workshop that was being taught by someone who actually was working in the field. And they, they basically were running this workshop on the side, which, by the way, if you're looking to learn about this stuff, I think the best way to learn is to find someone who's doing it as a day job and learn from them. The hard thing about going to schools for it is if someone's teaching full time, they're not in the industry and it moves so fast that by the time you're learning workflows and stuff, they might be out of date. Mm -hmm. So I took this workshop. I finally learned what a normal map was, like how to make and like kind of the step by step process of what we talked about earlier with the high poly, low poly. It made the pieces together, so I was like, great, I know how to do this. And so, like, one heads down, making portfolio pieces. And as I went, I, I started taking classes. And the classes end up being really great because I didn't have a network. You left it all behind, right, when you left L.A. Yeah. And so what I did was I started taking these classes. And it just so happened that I took a character creation class for video games from a school called Future Poly. That's unfortunately no longer around. And then I also took a digital painting life drawing class from this school called Gage Academy, which is in Capitol Hill. It's, it's a really great school for building traditional art skills, which is great for if you want to make it in. And it just so happened that the two instructors teaching those classes were both character artists at ArenaNet, which was the studio that made Guild Wars, which was a game that I played a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Serendipitous. Yeah. I didn't plan it this way, but I was like, sweet, awesome. There's these people here. I have been working on my portfolio. I have stuff together now that I can show them. And so I, I showed them my work and they were looking at it. And like when they saw the images by themselves, they're like, oh, okay, I think I can help you out with some things. Let's open up the model. We'll take a look. And so I was like, okay. So I opened up the model, showed them, and then they were like, oh, 
actually, this model's really good. <laughs> you should have the job already. And they're like, you just need to learn to get better at presenting it. And that's when I kind of learned that life lesson of like, okay, it's not enough to just be able to do the job. You also have to be good at like letting people know that you're good at the job. Sometimes means taking on skills that aren't directly related to doing the job. So it was through that that I began to know them and they saw how hard I was working in their classes. And they saw that when they gave me feedback, I took a tart and I, I like learned from it. The feedback they gave you was that actionable feedback that you then went and implemented into your work and then went through some iterations yeah. on that with them. So they got to see, oh, she's actually taking the feedback and incorporating it. Exactly. And pro tip, if you are talking to a professional and you're getting advice from them, show them that you're listening to them and you are <laughs> putting it into action because like they're busy. <laughs> So show them that their time has been worth it, basically. That's a big reason I'm putting the show together, right? Is to kind of scale out sharing words of wisdom, helping people put on. Me being able to learn more about what my colleagues do on the other side of the design wall, right? Like learning, oh yeah, normal maps, spec maps, yes, diffuse, yes, okay. That's what it really is, you know. But on the other side, there definitely is that aspect of like we make ourselves available I'm super happy to train and teach and share knowledge, but there are two different types of people, right? They're the people that hear it and it goes in one ear and out the other. Yeah. And then there's people that take it to heart and use it. And those are the people that generally go farther in work for sure. Totally agree. And I, I think it helped a lot because it, it made an impression on them. And then they knew that I was someone that could take good feedback and that I would listen and they could see I was working hard. And so it put me in the front of their minds when a job opening opened up at ArenaNet. But it was like an unspoken, unwritten thing. It wasn't like they were taking applications or anything like no, that. No, no. <laughs> a, a contract position opened up on the, the character art team at ArenaNet. And the position was on the more technical side. Basically, for anyone who's played Guild Wars 2, you could play a whole bunch of different races. And they're, they're totally different from each other. Like you have the tiny little round Asuras. And then you have the big muscular cat char people. <laughs> totally, totally different body types and everything. And as an MMO, you're collecting all these armors and like that's a big part of the game. And you could play as any of these different races and you could put on any of the armors, which from the content side means there needs to be a version of the armor for every single one of these races. <laughs> it's actually exponential, like how much work that is. Jeez. And so this contract position was to come help them out with that, with the also opportunity to do art creation and create assets, like art assets as well. And so I was super excited for that. I applied for that and then did a test. And it was funny because it was different than normal art tests. I basically went in and had a day of like doing the work while they watched me, <laughs> which is... I thought was normal. And then I found out later is like, I've never had that since. <laughs> wait, wait. So the art test is not like, here's the thing, take it home, give it back. And then we, we go over it Which together. Which is a normal art test. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, hey, come in as if you were already an employee here and do the work and we'll study you and watch you at work. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then we'll tell you if you passed or not. 
I didn't know it at the time. That's crazy. So I was just like, okay, this is what an art test is. It, it is not what an art test is. <laughs> <laughs> but you got the job off of it. I got the job. So it was like, sweet. And it was my first time in the game industry doing the thing that I wanted to do. And so I was so excited. Just to get a sense of the time, right? From the time you finished your Neversoft internship, or even the time you finished school, the time you moved to Washington and the time you got work. Like, what was the length of time between those moments? I remember it was longer than I wanted it to be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, like, that's relative, right? Like, I'm sure you would have liked to have had a job like the moment you landed in Washington or, hey, I graduated now, I I know I have a job. I'm really fortunate because I have a life partner that really values what I do as well as what he does. And at the time, he had just gotten this sweet gig at Microsoft. And so, like, there was a period when I was up here and I was trying to figure out what to do. And like I said, my portfolio wasn't ready. So when I sent it out to places, I I wasn't getting responses. And and there's also not a lot of character art jobs, right? So it's not like I could just keep applying. You had probably applied to all the ones that were available that you knew of already, kind of thing. Yeah, that I knew of. But again, portfolio wasn't ready yet. So then I was like... What what do I do now? And there there actually was like a moment where I was like, this isn't cool. Like you're working, I should be working too. Like so, I'll just go get a job and then I can do this on the side and keep working on it. And you know what? If it, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And to his credit, my husband was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> he was just like, you've worked so hard for this. You were so close. Don't take a job outside of the game industry just to take a job. Like, I'm working. I can support you during this period while you put together your portfolio. He's like, I, I know you. I know you're going to work really hard at it. So he's like, yeah, just try taking a little bit of time, put together your portfolio and apply. Shout out to your partner. That's so wonderful and special, right? Like, you know, you always kind of figure that people have good interests in mind. And when you ally with someone or you get engaged or you marry someone, but that's extremely powerful, right? Just in general, that someone supports your vision that has seen the work you have put into it and knows that just a little bit more help, right? Just a little bit more help to take that next step to get over that next hump and then things will work out. So shout out to your partner. That's awesome. He, he saw something that, that you saw in him, right? When you guys like, hey, let's do this, right? We're moving up there. We're making it happen. Yeah. No, Rusty is awesome. And I'm so thankful that he did that because after that, I took those classes and I made those contacts and then I got that contract job and I got to make smart assets. Like it was, it was really exciting because one of the first things I did was so like the Korean version of E3. It's called G-Star, I think. Uh-huh. And they're going to reveal Guild Wars 2 there. And it was like a big deal. This is like NCSoft, the parent company. Like NCSoft, or the, the publisher for Guild Wars is, is basically in Korea. So like they wanted to showcase this game at their version of E3, which is a big deal. And for the, the reveal, they're going to show all the different classes. And the armor sets had already been created, but not all the like hairstyles and the faces. So one of the first things I got to work on there was the hairstyle for one of the male elementalists. And so I was like, okay, cool. This is awesome. This is my first time making art asset for a game. And I was just geeking out. School had prepared me for this moment by telling me that I would get like a turnaround concept and my job would be creating that concept. And so I was like, okay, let's do this. Where's the concept? 
I remember my art lead came over and he's like, hey, Corinne, yeah, so I want you to make this hairstyle. And and basically, I just think Justin Bieber. And then he just, like, walked away. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And this is the direction your art lead comes and gives you, right? Like, takes all of what? 30 seconds of his day for this big task. But it's normal. (laughs) That's actually like, that's how it actually works. You don't get that turnaround (laughs) concept. Usually you get like one image for the characters looking really cool. And uh, Guild Wars and ArenaNet was really funny because they're known for their badass concept team. And so they would have this like amazing concept of like a dragon. And then like you would get that to build the armor set. And it was based off of this little scribble in the corner of this guy fighting the dragon. And so we built it off of that. So actually, yeah, from my experience in the game industry since, that's kind of par for the course. But yeah, so I did that. I think it went well because, like, they used it in the game. So my, my stuff was, I had my hairstyle and, like, a big game reveal, which, like, had me super excited. And then from there, it was like, okay, now we need you to work on the armory fits, basically. So I was like, okay. And so I started working on that and it it was a monstrous task and it was like never ending. So there's just so much work and really just makes me think of some of the best advice I got throughout my experience in the game industry is basically like if you volunteer to do something, make sure you're okay with it becoming your whole job. Your whole job, really. And in this case, is it the armor refitting and and the skinning? It's not the funnest (laughs) character art task. There is creative, like, you do need an artist for it because it's like, how do you take this arm set made for a human and then make it look good on a little Sura and then like on a quadruped leg and like there are problems to solve, but it's not like the super fun art task that you like hope to get. And so what happened was I had this monstrous pile of work and I was like, okay, I'm just gonna put my head down and work really hard through this. I'm gonna get this all, all this stuff done and then I'll get back to the fun art tasks where I can like keep showing that I'm I'm good at art. But this weird thing happens where if you show that you're technical people forget that you're artistic and vice versa if you show that you're super artistic people forget that you're technical and so i was doing this technical job and then people started forgetting that i could do the art side of it even though i had in the first part of my contract there and so got to the end of my contract date and no one said anything and i was still going and i was still working i was still getting paid so i was like okay, I think I'm still good here. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, we'll, we'll let you know like about your contract. But, like, we'll let you know like, next week. And then it was, came next week, next week. And then I finished all the armory feds. And then I, I was basically told, that's great that you did that, but your contract is ending because that's what we needed you for and you finished. Which at the time, like, I know it's silly to say, but that was kind of my dream job because I loved Guild Wars. Even though it wasn't exactly what I wanted to do, I was working on characters on a video game. And so, like, it was kind of like a soul-crushing moment when it's like, oh, no, you did too good at the job, so we're letting you go. And I remember the art lead there, he gave me some advice that was, it was hard to hear at the moment, but I think it was good advice. 
it was when you're in a job, you want to make sure to show that you're good at the job that you want to do and not just the job that you're actually doing. Mm. And at the time, I was like, I worked so hard for you. I got this done so we could ship the game on time. And you're telling me like I shouldn't have done that. Like what? For sure. It's, it's definitely counterintuitive for like essentially your first full-time gig. Oh, I'm sorry, it's contract, but you're working on a game that you play yourself. I always admire artists who play the game they're working in. And it's unfortunate, but I'm not surprised anymore by the artist that doesn't ever load up the game. <laughs> it used to shock me. Now it doesn't anymore. And you always remember your first gig. It's always special, near and dear. And it's still counterintuitive, right? Like, hey, I did great work. I over-delivered. Mm-hmm. And instead of that getting recognized, it's kind of like perfect, your contract is done, right? Like you did what we needed you to do. The expectations, I mean, the human expectations are like people would recognize that and reward that yeah. with with a role, with a recommendation, with like a, hey, we don't have something here, but in this amount of time or our sister studio over here or something like that, right? Now they have much more experience. Like he was right. As counterintuitive as it is, like I, I was focused on the wrong thing. I, I should have been really focused on showing him that like, hey, I can do the art side and then almost putting less effort towards the thing that they hired me, like, which goes against my very nature. <laughs> but it was great advice because it's a thing of like being good at your job. That's super important. But then as, as I think you gain more experience and as you work longer, you realize another thing that's just as important is making sure people know that you're doing the good job. Because I think we all know people that work really hard, they're really good at their jobs, but then just people don't know it and they don't get recognized for it. So it's, it's almost like a side skill that gets built up over time of n- not boasting or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Just, there's a lot of soft skills built into just making sure people know what you're working on and what you've got done. Yeah, I'm glad you called that out because that is a very fine line. And I've definitely fallen into that space myself as well, where mm-hmm. I feel like I'm doing a, a solid job. My team, my pod or my group, we're delivering, we're wowing. Everybody knows who's responsible for what and we're like a well-oiled machine to then hear from kind of the game director to be like oh i didn't know it was you and then to get the feedback to be like hey you should take up more space you should be more vocal you should be out on the floor yada 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 and you know a lot of us introverts that's not how we operate i always had the impression that you know the work will speak for itself it comes up in reviews people are seeing it we're talking about it there's emails so it is a very fine line, and and I like that you call that out, right? That it's part of the soft skill to communicate, to keep people informed, is also a part of management, right? To making sure that your reports are being acknowledged or recognized for their contribution, as well as yourself, not depending on management to, to do that for you and, and taking opportunity or making the opportunity to be like, this is what I want to be working on, or this is what we want to focus on. I don't know. I'm curious your thoughts on that, because that, that's a very fine line, the line of boasting and bragging and taking credit versus like making sure that you're recognized and valued for the things that you want to do right and are happy to I'm, I'm really glad you called out that it, it is definitely something that's harder for introverts it definitely goes against my nature something that helps me is in, in addition to just making sure it's known what I'm doing and when I'm doing a good job I also try to make sure that I call out when people are doing a good job and when they're going above and beyond and that kind of 
helps balance out the scale in my head because I, I feel weird <laughs> just talking about myself. So yeah, I think it is a fine balance, basically. And it's one of those interesting soft skills that is, I think, built just over years of experience. In the perfect scenario, you have a manager or a lead who you can work with one-on-one, right? Who Your job is to give them ammunition to advocate for you. And so in those big reviews or grand stages, they use the ammunition that you provide them to give you the recognition. But that's a, that's a great topic. So it sounds like you had a, a solid impression with your arena net colleagues. So it was kind of like a, a downer moment. So I was like, oh no, dream job. Like I did all this work, but oh, okay, I guess I focused on the wrong thing. But the upside to that is I worked really hard and that was visible. Like my coworkers, my teammates, they saw that. They saw how hard I worked. They saw how much I cared. And so when, when my contract ended, I'm trying to figure out what to do next. And then a friend reached out and was like, hey, there's there's an IGDA talk and they're hosting at Bungie. Do you want to go? And I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, let's go. Let's go check out this talk. We were both kind of excited to go just because, I mean, it sounded like a good talk, but also we both were excited to see this Bungie Studios. <laughs> yeah, it's like a museum of Halo. And at the time, nobody knew that they were doing Destiny. People knew that they were working on something new. Mm-hmm. And that was it. And and so it was like, okay, let's go to this talk. We'll get to see the studio. And so I, I went there. And then as we were leaving the talk, I ran into one of my ex-coworkers from ArenaNet, whose name was Ken Osuna. I had worked with him at ArenaNet, and he had left to go join Bungie. So I was like, oh, hey, how are you doing? How you been? We're catching up. And he was like, oh, hey, by the way, uh, just to let you know, like, we have a character artist position opening up, and you should totally apply. And like on the surface, I was like, oh, okay, cool. And in my head, I was like, whoa, like I, I never thought <laughs> of applying here because it's Bungie. <laughs> Meaning it's like a, another level of developer. Yeah, because it, it's the Bungie. It's the place that made Halo. Like, <laughs> And then I kind of went home and I was like, oh man, I should apply. Because like, Ken was basically like, yeah, apply and I'll, I'll go ahead and recommend you because I've worked with you. I've seen how hard you work and I've seen how much you care about the end product and everything. So I was like, oh, okay, well, I have to apply because like, it's Bungie. And, <laughs> and it's a character artist role, which is super rare. Yes, but then I'm looking at my portfolio and um, most of my time at Arena was spent on those armor refits. I did get to make art, but they're like bits and pieces of full characters. So it, I left ArenaNet with like nothing really for my portfolio. So I was like, I want to apply here, but don't have anything for ArenaNet. I don't have anything sci-fi because like I don't know what they're working on. But like, I'm going to go ahead and guess. <laughs> yeah, It's still also. sci-fi. So I was like, okay, I'm going to take some time. I polished up my portfolio pieces. And then I went ahead and I made a new one. I had a, a quick sculpt that I did of a sci-fi bat concept. And so I went in and I, I polished it up and I actually made it into like a game model. And, and that was basically my attempt at being like, look, I can do sci-fi. <laughs> how, how much time to turn that around, would you say? I, I don't even remember. Because I also wanted to apply as soon as possible. Because I, I didn't know when the position would be filled. So I think I gave myself like a week or something. 
Okay. Yeah, because by this point, you got pretty good with time boxing. <laughs> yeah. It was either a week or a few days. And I was in between jobs that so was like, I didn't have to balance a day job and tests, right? And so I sent that in. It was good enough to get an art test. This is a more normal art test. They... <laughs> Not the one where you're like, all right, come in, do the work. <laughs> we'll watch you like a little mouse in a maze. <laughs> Yeah, so basically, there's a constant character. I had a choice of making a leg, an arm, or a head. I chose the head. Would you say there's a difficulty difference when you're picking an appendage to a head? Or is it all the same anatomy-wise? I mean, it, it depends what people are good at. Because you, you tell me draw a hand and I will lose it. I'll be like, ah, a hand. So at Bungie, actually, they have different departments. They have a, a character art department and they have a hard surface department. And the hard surface department, they work in all the weapons and the vehicles. And so like something like an arm or a leg, that's more hard surface. That's more like mauling the forms and getting it in. Something like a face, that's like a, a, a different skill set. That's more of organic mauling. And that, that happened to be something that I was good at. So I picked the face. And also it's easier to make a cool looking face than it is to make a cool looking leg. <laughs> like, I think so, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> So I, I picked the, the head. It's the easiest to get people to connect to and think feeling cool. And it played up to my strengths and good enough to get the interview. And the Bungie interviews are based off of Microsoft interviews. So they're intense. It's like eight hours of interview and you spend each hour talking to different departments. So you're not just talking to artists. No. And actually at Polaric, we, we do a similar type of interview process, which I like because it doesn't matter what discipline you are in game development. You're probably working with people outside your discipline, right? 100%. So like, I, I think that type of interviewing is, is really good for having the other disciplines have a chance to, to vet how they think that they will work with them, which is the important part. The name of the game is collaboration. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Is, is being able to get a sense of like how well would this person be at a table taking feedback, giving feedback. But I'm sure it also gives you a chance to see if you would mesh well with, with the team when you get to know all the different departments. Yeah. And now that I'm on the other side of interviews a lot, I, I really like to make sure to make a point of that because I think the best interviews are when the person being interviewed is also interviewing the company to see if they're a good fit so totally that's an important part of it too do you remember how you felt after the interview or any kind of like big standout moments during the interview i forgot about this till now but there actually is a crazy thing about the interview process was that they scheduled it for when i was down in california so i actually flew back up here to take the interview and then flew back down oh my goodness yeah so i forgot about that entirely <laughs> um, and like I, I don't know why but they wouldn't like reschedule it so it was like okay wow. <laughs> i'll do this yeah so uh, after the interview i was after eight hours of talking it was like i was just brain dead of course but, any human being would be drained after that for sure that's a full day of meeting with new people and having to sell yourself right and just be like all pistons firing. There's a lot of repeating the same thing over and over. <laughs> and so like after the interview, I think I just went home, passed out, and I flew back to California after. <laughs> <laughs> but the hardest interview you've ever done up to that point. Yes. Even including going in and like working in front of people. It went well. 
I got the job offer. I got in as a most junior low-level <laughs> character artist there is. What's the official title? They had this weird thing where they had contract workers, but they called them tiger employees. So it was actually a tiger employee. Because they have a whole thing with tigers. Like the game engine is called the tiger engine. It, it's a whole thing. I found out later it was like the lowest level <laughs> possible for an artist. You're like artist level one. Yeah. <laughs> Something worth highlighting was that this opportunity might have passed you by had you not gone to the IGDA meeting. Yeah. Yeah, so something something to call out there is for people looking for work or ways to get in or, I don't know, looking for a change is to get out there and go to events, not with the sole intention and purpose of like, oh, I'm going to get a job, but, you know, just put yourself in the middle of the things you want to be doing and that will usually lead to good opportunities coming your way. One of the things I heard early on is that it's a really small community, the game development community. And then now that I'm in it and I have all these years uh, of experience, it's, it's so true. And once you're in there and once you kind of establish yourself, a lot of the job opportunities you get are from people that you know. And I know for me, like networking sounded like such a skeezy thing. <laughs> I was like, this is weird. But like what helped me is it's not so much networking as it is just making friends. Making um, friends. Yeah, yeah. Finding, finding people that have similar interests and connecting on, on that level. Yeah, and being like genuinely interested in what they do. And, and once I started approaching it from that viewpoint, it became much, much easier. Yeah. True, right? Like if you have a similar game that you enjoy or enjoy similar types of art or pop culture or outdoor activities, whatever, anything. Yeah, but that's, that's a great lens to look at it from is just looking to make a connection, make a friend. And then you usually do that by bonding over similar interests. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fair. Great strategy. So how did it feel getting the offer to work for Bungie, right? And your eyes like, holy cow, Bungie's a different level of mm -hmm. developer. And, you know, they make Halo. Wow, I'm in. How does that feel, right? Based on your work, your portfolio, the connections you've made by this point. I, I was super pumped. Nice. Super exciting. And then I couldn't quite believe it was real. <laughs> so you start a game artist level one, right? Like you're, you're playing the game from the very beginning. So I, I started like at the bottom level, right? And so like the first task I got was, hey, we have these NPCs that are milling about the tower. There's not enough variety there. Can you add to that, add more variety, but you can't make any new assets or any new textures, sorry. So you have to work with what's there. And the thing about NPCs, right? Everyone thinks of character art, they think of making the main character. They think of making the cool character, the badass, the person that makes the, the player feel like, yeah, I wanna be that person, I'm so excited. NPCs are like the opposite of that. <laughs> you actually don't want NPCs to be too cool because they'll take away from the feeling of cool of the player. So there's like NPCs are like this fine balance of you want them to be just cool enough to make the world cool, but not take away from how cool the player feels. So, <laughs> there's this glass ceiling there. <laughs> yeah. awesome. So that's how I started. That was my first thing. I was working on these NPCs. I was working with work that had already been created. This was for Destiny 1. This is for Destiny 1. That's correct. And actually, it was funny because the day after I interviewed with them was the day that the leak happened. And then I was like, oh, okay, that's the game I'll be working on. <laughs> like, hey, did that factor into your, your decision at all? Well, it... 
it was hard because even the leak, there wasn't that much there to see what type mm. of game it was, right? Because it, it was just this makeshift concept of what would eventually become three guardians like running together. I was excited because I knew Bungie did good work because I've played their games before. They're always good with the gameplay. <laughs> yeah, say, say whatever you want, but multiplayer, single player gameplay is awesome for sure. Yeah, and so for me, I was excited because I knew whatever they were making, it was going to be good, probably. You were going to be proud to get your name on it. Yeah, that for me was where the excitement was, is like finding out what this secret project was that they were working on. And also just like looking at the previous releases and just the quality of games they're turning out. I was like, I want to work here. This is like the quality of game that I want to work on. I started off with the the lowly, like, modify these NPCs and I just worked really hard. I see a pattern in your career. (laughs) I guess so. So they had a thing where they had armor sets. And looking back, I wonder if it was part of the reason why I was hired. Was the plan was to make these armor sets for the big, burly, like manly guardians. Yeah. And then to figure out how to convert them to work with the, the female version of the guardians. And by the time I, I had been hired on, they actually were trying to figure out if they could make it work. Because the female guardians had to fit on the male skeletons. Which is, it's hard to do. It's hard to say this shoulder is going to pivot in the same place for a a feminine female as it does like a very masculine (laughs) man. And so they were having trouble figuring it out. It was to the point where they were kind of like, oh man, should we get rid of the ability to play like a female guardian? And I felt passionate that they shouldn't get rid of it. So I basically just made a comment of like, hey, you know, I can help out with that. (laughs) Is that on the strength of your experience with what you were doing at ArenaNet? Yeah, and also I had done a lot of work to get good at organic sculpting and modeling. So I was looking at at it and I was like, I think I can actually do this. I think I can figure out this weird puzzle of how do you make female guardians that feel like strong and feminine and they're using the same skeleton as the men. (laughs) You can like give it to me. And so they're like, okay. Go ahead and figure it out. That's awesome, right? Because essentially, like, it seemed like a problem that wasn't going to be figured out or that they had tried and they weren't getting anywhere. So it was going to be cut. And that would have been a huge loss for Destiny, right? To be like, hey, you can only pick one sex or one type of character. Yeah. And and for me, I didn't say it at the time, but anyone who's playing a guardian, they're playing someone who's been, like, brought back by the light, by your base little ghost. So little ghost goes around and they bring back people that they think are worthy. And then like, I'm like, that's not great if, if that's the storyline and you can only play men. <laughs> for sure. For sure. That's why I felt super passionate about it. I, I pushed to take that on. I was like, I'll do whatever is necessary to figure this out because I, I feel passionate about it. I actually got to work closely with the art director, which is really neat. So this opportunity that you fought for, I think I, I guess it wasn't going to come to you, but... You fought for the opportunity and it, and it allowed you to create a closer working relationship with the art director. That's a great opportunity, I think. Yeah, it, it was cool because like, I, I don't think I would have worked with him otherwise. <laughs> so I worked with him to figure out like kind of what the proportions that he wanted. And I basically made these guides for how to do this while, while still having... Because there's a tricky balance. Is you, you want 
the, the female guardians, you want them to feel feminine and you, you want them to be good looking, but you also want them to be strong because they're still guardians. They're still like crazy, Heroes. like badass. Yeah, they're space warriors. warriors. Yeah. <laughs> and so there, there's a nuance and a balance there. It's the type of problem solving that I really love. Mm-hmm. So I, ha- I had a lot of fun putting it together and I wrote all these guides for like how the like strategies for do it and like a reference like meshes and stuff. Yeah. And then people liked it. So that became the, the guidelines for how we made female guardians. That's an awesome story. I think, first of all, to hear that an artist does documentation for other artists, that's like, whoa, that's mind blowing. I didn't know that happens. <laughs> I'm known for that. <laughs> Yeah. Even even as a designer, right? It's like our job to write design specs and docs. And what we find out is that no one reads. No one really reads unless they have, have to. Photos. Like Photos. images are your friend. Yes. <laughs> yes. Speak through images. Gifts, images, and videos. Yeah. I became the person that jumped from task to task. If, if something was about to be cut, like they would put me on it as like a last resort and I would... I'd get all fired up, like, oh, I don't want this to get cut, and then I'd work really hard. Like, the player heads, too, that was that was another thing that I got put on, was the ability to pick a face for your character. So, helped out a lot there, because that, that was also at a state where they're thinking of, of maybe cutting it, because... What had happened is they had been modeled on ZBrush and and the, the artist who worked on like Will Patrick, he's badass, he's awesome. He made all these awesome faces, but the faces are tricky because our brain is so attuned to reading faces that any little thing that's off kind of like pings our brain as like wrong. And, and that's where the uncanny valley comes from. So like he made all these awesome faces, they got put into the game and they got rigged and skinned. But the problem was they're made for like the ZBrush FOV and the game engine FOV was different and it was actually changing as they were tuning things. And it's like when you take a selfie on your phone and the selfie looks completely different than you do in real life, that's the FOV having an effect on, on your face. And it's way more noticeable on a face than like on anything else. So we're at a point where we couldn't redo these faces because there wasn't time. And they weren't sure if they were going to work out for the game. And there were talks about them being cut. I got put on there. And then basically, I couldn't change the geometry. I couldn't uh-huh. move it around. But I needed them to look right. And so it's funny, but I actually like used a whole bunch of like makeup tricks. <laughs> really? Like shading and, and detail? Yeah, because makeup too is another thing you use to like adjust the way the face looks without modifying <laughs> the geometry of it, right? So you're saying you're applying real life makeup techniques to yeah. digital characters. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, it's just going into the tool bag, right? Like you never know what's going to be helpful in whatever situation. That's amazing. It goes back to that thing where you should always check your asset in game, mm-hmm. right? Because there may be something lost in translation or in importing or exporting. And it seems like that one caught a lot of people by surprise when they put these faces into the engine. There are other things, and I don't mean to make it sound like I was the only one that saved these features. Like it was a team effort across the whole team yeah but like 
through our hard work, we we're able to like get these features back into the game. And faces were important to me because it's what helped make it different from Halo. Because Halo, you play like this faceless protagonist. I know Master Chief is a character, but when everyone plays it, they are thinking of themselves as Master Chief. Like even me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But the thing that I thought would be great for Destiny is the chance for people to pick a face that like kind of communicates who they new. are. Yeah, and it's completely new. So yeah, we shipped Destiny 1, and the reception was pretty good. I was able to get all this experience and all these different aspects of like the character creation, which was really neat. But the downside was I was in another position where I shipped a game and I didn't have anything for my portfolio because it was a lot of working with other people's work. I didn't have a lot of assets that I actually created. It was a lot of modifying assets to get them to work for the game. The only asset that I actually got to create for Destiny 1 was like a thigh piece for one of the armor pieces. It's not great to like show a huge armor and then be like, I made this one thigh piece. So leaving Destiny 1, I think I was probably the only person on the team who could do all these different things because I had worked on NPCs, I worked on hair, I'd worked on player faces and like all these different systems. So I kind of knew how they all worked, but I didn't have that portfolio. Like I wasn't getting an opportunity to show like I can do the art. <laughs> yeah. Going back to making sure that you're not just doing your job, but doing the job you want to be doing. Right. I did learn from that because even though I wasn't able to do it at work, I was doing like, we used to call them lunch crunches where it was like during your lunch hour, you just speed sculpt something in ZBrush. And oh. so as a team, we'd sculpt things. So I was still doing art and I was still showing art. It was just, I, I didn't have the opportunity to do that at work. So it was, I was doing it with like the personal work that I was doing. That sounds cool. Like something I would recommend if I was an artist to other artists, like, hey, let's do speed sculpting lunch crunches. They're pretty fun and it helps build the skill too of sculpting fast, which you, you kind of need when you're <laughs> making stuff on a production schedule. And and it's cool too, because you, you get to pick whatever you want to work on. So if you're tired of working on the thing at work, it's a way of like keeping things fresh. You can pick something that you wouldn't get an opportunity to work on. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that happens, right? Like you want to be able to work on something different after a set amount of time. And then sometimes you might not have that outlet. So you have to kind of create for yourself. I find it also helps me be more productive at the job to do that because then I am more like creatively satisfied because at work you're usually constrained to like either someone else's vision or the limitations of the project. So then it's the way to like still have creative ownership, which, you know, like that's why we all get into this. Yeah, <laughs> that's what drives any creative, right? Is to have ownership on the thing they're making. Yeah. What would you say is like a key strategy to refuel that? For me, a key strategy is the personal work is doing stuff on the side because you get to fine tune it, right? There's this concept artist named Jamie Jones. He did concepts for the new Star Wars movie. Like, he's a badass. But one of the things that I learned that he does is while he was working at Bungie, like he was going home and he was painting like medieval fantasy paintings, you know? And then when he was working at ArenaNet, he was going home and he was painting sci-fi. Oh. <laughs> so it's a way of keeping it fresh. And then you also get to continually develop your own taste and your own eye and like your personal work because you're, you're the one art directing it and you're the one deciding what you're doing, basically. So these aren't necessarily like portfolio pieces. These are more personal 
additional things to express yourself, right? And, and do the things you're not getting to do at work to keep those creative juices as sharp and replenished as possible. They could be both. <laughs> or both. Yeah. Because the, the speed sculpts, that sci-fi armor set that I, I made for when I applied to Bungie, that started from a speed sculpt that I did from a, a lunch crunch before. And so, like, they could be both. But then also, like, like right now, I'm doing a lot of, like, Photoshop paintings. That I don't think they'd help me get another character art position, but those those are for myself, basically. Those are for yourself. Painting in Photoshop, keeping the skills sharp. So after Destiny 1 is when we start working on all the DLCs that came out. Our lead changed. Our old lead got promoted. And that's when one of my peers, Chris Alderson, got promoted to lead. Shout out to Chris. Now we're working on the DLC. It now is under him. And I was just like, man, I I need to start doing stuff that I can put in a portfolio. Because I'm like, I I get to work at this awesome company. I get to work on this awesome game. I just don't have anything that I could show that's like mine. And so I was talking to Chris and he was like, hey, you know what? The way it's going to work is I'll, I'll give you like an art task. If you do well, I'll give you another art task and then we'll just continue from there. And as you like prove yourself, like the art task will get bigger. So I'm like, okay, sweet. You see a light. You see a light yes. signal. <laughs> thanks to this new person coming in to be the lead. And he gives me an armor set. And I'm like, I get to make something from scratch. Yeah. I'm not just like working on someone else's work and making their work look really good. I get to make my own thing. How long were you at Bungie by this point? I think I was at Bungie for like a year or so before shipping Destiny 1. Okay. So about a year or so in. Yeah. So I was like, okay, this is it. I get to do it. And of course, because I'd been waiting so long to do it, I was just like, I'm going to go all out. You're going to go super Saiyan on this thing, man. You have all this pent up energy (laughs) that you're ready to just unleash on this thing. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, the concept artist had come up with this concept, but it was like, okay, we want this, but the, the art director wasn't happy with the hood. So we need ideas for the hood. And it was a hive armor set. And the hive are like the creepy space mummy race of destiny. And then he's like, in a similar way as the Justin Bieber here, he's like, just think creepy and disturbing. And that was it. (laughs) And so I actually went through... I concepted like a bunch of like options for the hood and I I had fun with it. Like the one that actually got picked was I I concepted, I came up with this idea of having like, like a rib cage in the hood. So you have the cloth over the ribs and you could see him poking like through and everything. Totally. And I I knew I did a good job when like Chris came back and he was like, yeah, okay. I'm a little scared of you now. (laughs) 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 This is creepy. (laughs) I followed the direction. This is awesome because it's, it's on your art station. It's like female dark hollow armor. Yeah. There's a male version too. So I'm definitely going to link to this in the show notes. It is creepy for sure. First of all, it's a badass idea as well. Like you don't see that in a cloth fabric hoodie, right? Like kind of bones. And it, and actually when you when you talk about it as a rib cage, as I look at a profile shot, because it's red, right? It definitely has this look of like meat ribs that you <laughs> kind of pick off the bone when you stare at it a bit you're like whoa it leaves an impression yeah and i i had a lot of fun i i should have taken more screenshots but i i hit a whole bunch of like creepy details in the armor too like little bits that look like teeth coming out and uh, else just creepy textures and stuff it was fun (laughs) 
so yeah, so that was the first thing. And, and I think Chris was like, okay, like you did a whole bunch of concepts. You're working really hard. Okay, let's, let's give you another armor set. And then it was like, okay, let's give you another armor set. And then eventually it was like, okay, what about some combatants, which are the enemies in mm-hmm. Destiny? And then it was like, okay, what about some bosses? You want to do some bosses? And I'm like, yeah. That's big time. Yeah, but yeah. bosses are kind of like the second biggest deal next to the character, I imagine. And they're fun because we have all the different races and they each have like a different feel. So they're, they're really fun to work on. And then you, you also you get to work closely with the designers on them because they have to like uh. serve game, gameplay communication functions. And you want to make sure you get the right feeling and the right vibe from them. Was that a new experience at the time? Getting to work closely with gameplay design? Yeah, that, that was a new experience. I think that was like the first time got to do it and it's awesome because designers well any discipline really their background and the way that they think about things is is different so they're seeing the same problem they're coming up with like a a different way of thinking about it and a different solution and the really neat thing about it is you learn so much (laughs) working with them like i love working with designers i just love working with people that are like outside of my discipline i guess because i learn a lot for sure. Just having this conversation, I'm learning a ton of stuff. And <laughs> it's, it's super cool, right? Because that has an impact on both directions, right? When another discipline, a designer, an audio person, or even an engineer can understand the implications of what goes into building these things. And we can incorporate that into, into what we're doing and vice versa, right? When you're looking at your art through the lens of a gameplay function, I'm sure that then that adds a new level to the things you're building on your characters. Or it's not just like, how can this look a certain way? But now it's like, hey, how can this serve a function, I think? I love that. Like, I do a lot of that now at my current job. Just the way I approach characters tends to be like that anyway. Because even before I got to work with designers, I I loved learning, like, who is this character? Like, what's their background? Like, who are they? And then I really loved when I'm making them, I just fit as many like little details and like hints and just everything that could support that. And then now it's, I get to do that, but I also get to think about the larger picture of the game design and the experience and like, am I communicating the right thing to the player? Are they going to know to do the right thing? I I like solving puzzles (laughs) in game Mm -hmm. development. There's a lot of puzzles to solve. Never ending is a never ending (laughs) list of puzzles, right? We're we're always working at the cutting edge of technology or defining Mm -hmm. something from scratch, right? And all these different disciplines bring their own part to it right and having to fit that all together is very much compiling like a million piece jigsaw puzzle yeah it it was neat at this point kept getting more and more responsibility and like i was super excited because everything i was working on was new and i got to like get to do like a little bit of everything i was able to do armor sets player customization combatants bosses i got to touch all the variety available in character art which is really neat and really fun because there's nuances and there's like different goals for each one so there's different ways to approach each and i was i was really excited because the reason why i wanted to become a, a character artist to begin with is I actually really love story and world building in video games, and I, I love the characters that they build there. And so when the opportunity came where like Chris came to my desk and he's like, hey, we have a, an actual like story character, just the catch being we only have a week on the schedule to do this character, which is, is a very short amount of time. 
to make Extremely. a character. So he was like, okay, so basically we're going to have to repurpose some armor pieces and we're going to have to do some tricks to be able to get this character done in time because that's a very short time. So I was like, okay. And I was like, cool. And, and like, what's the concept? And he was like, oh yeah. And here's the concept. One of the concept artists, Joseph Cross, on his free time, he had like made these characters that fit within the world. And they were just these awesome, like weird base fantasy characters that were like unlike anything you'd be seeing anywhere else. They're all really cool. And he sent them out to the character team and he was like, hey, hey, I did these. I just wanted to show you. And we were all geeking out over them because they're, they're really cool. He had made this really cool concept of a of like a sci-fi space ninja, basically. And when I saw it was that concept, I was like, this is such a cool character. We can't just repurpose armor pieces and like kind of hack one together. The, the potential here is just like way too much. Like we, we need to give this what it needs. But game production, right? Like it working within the limitations you're given. I had a week. And it seems like an extremely unique character that kind of breaks any mold of what you guys have done before. That's why repurposing armor, I was like, I don't think this will work because the appeal of this character is how unique and how weird it is. And Chris is like, yeah, I hear you, but I really think you need to like try this out. So I was like, okay. So I, I made the version where I repurposed the armor. Like I made it really quick, put it there so they could look at it and be like, oh yeah, that doesn't work. But really I was going all out on trying to make the version of the character that I thought it had to be. In the background while you're, while you're yeah, making sure. Yeah, while that, I was. <laughs> yeah, that's actually smart, right? Like you trust your instincts to know that, hey, this is not going to work and I really want to make this work and I only have this limited amount of time. So I'm going to do the thing, but I'm also going to give them what they asked for so that to help them realize <laughs> that it's not going to work out the way they want it to. And your plan B. And selfishly, right? I wanted this for my portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want this character. Hey, way to keep it real. It's just cool. So I went through and I was I was making the character. And then like halfway through the week, they're like, this character had a mask and you couldn't see the face. They're like, you know, we thought about it and we want to add a face to it. <laughs> so, you can, so you can relate to her and you can, and it was like, Okay, great. And so then, like, me and the concept artist went, went away, did a couple sketches, sent them to me, and he's like, what do you think? I was like, let's let's pitch this one because I, I can actually get this one done, and I think it looks really cool. He's like, okay. So we pitched that idea, and then I was just going full tilt. I was working late nights. A week under normal circumstances is 40 hours, but I'm sure it was probably much more than that a little little bit more than that but i i was super pumped up and so I made the character i remember the last day too they were like it would be really cool if this part of the character moved and i was like oh and i've never done like an effect like that before and i didn't have the time to learn so i, I just want to shout out to glenn gamble who's one of the effects artists there he was, nice. he was like one of the nicest guys. I like messaged him and I was like, Glenn, I have to do this. I have no time. <laughs> like, Can you just let me know how you would do it so I could just do that thing? And he, he was really nice because he was effects artist. He had done a bunch of hive effects. So he, he was like, this texture that I already made for this effect will work perfect. And like my trick is I just pan him at different times and it should work great. And I was like, thank you. That's the best when you're like in the heart of a deadline and you know what you need, but you can't build it or you need help to build it. And someone just kind of is able to save the day or, or take the time to walk you through something that they've built for you to use it. 
knowing when to ask for help is a very valuable skill. And I'm guilty of this too, but I think it's easy to fall in the tendency of like, I'll figure it out. And then you spend like way longer figuring it out than it would have been just to ask the person that's an expert in it how to do it. Yup. Know when to ask for help, especially when you get to work with experts. Yeah. So yeah. And then I, I got the character, I got it in and then like, and because it was such a quick turnaround, like me and the concept artist got to kind of like create our vision of it. And it was so exciting. And I was like, sweet. And I like turned it in and I didn't realize how big of a deal it would be until the marketing department like kind of messaged me and was like, hey, by the way, I, I heard you made this character and I just wanted to show you. And it was the, the image for the DLC. The, the character I had been working on was basically Eris Morn, who yeah. became a very big character in the Destiny universe. Yeah. And the DLC was the Dark Blow, and it, it's just a big picture of her, and she's holding a glowing orb. And inside the orb, you can see the Guardians, but it's mostly just on her. <laughs> no, that image is fantastic. Again, this one you can find on your art station as well. That's the one I've been staring at the whole time as you've been describing her. Is <laughs> kind of gazing down at this like Hadouken fireball that does show the three guardians and it's super eye-catching I think that's awesome I was about to ask you hey how did the team receive this but then when it makes it all the way to marketing materials you know you got something special that was ultimately like my dream and the whole reason why I got into character it was to be able to make main story characters and like that that was the point where it was like oh my god <laughs> i did it <laughs> <laughs> this was the thing i always dreamt of doing and it hit you like i think i'm still maybe processing it but like it's neat because chris kept his word like, he gave me something if i did good at it he would give me something more right and so the tasks i started getting were story characters because at that moment i was like i didn't think i'd here. That's amazing. Like like Chris, you know, having a, a lead that worked with you, that stuck to his word and that you took advantage of to be like, hey, I'm going to ride this opportunity for all this work, right? I'm going to take the work, I'm going to crush it, and I'm going to keep getting more interesting work to eventually mm-hmm. get up to Eris. Uh, yeah, I'm curious. <laughs> Where do you go from here? Because shout out to Chris, first of all, for like keeping his word and continuing to give you opportunities that challenge you and brought out your best work. But where where do you go from there? That seems like you're at the peak, you know, <laughs> like I'm, at, at this point, are you still level one artist or you're like level four artist now? It's, it's funny that you asked that because actually, yeah, I was still a level one tiger artist. <laughs> wow. This is like, what, two years in already by this point, two, three years Yeah. In. And that that was the thing, right? Contract work is hard because like Bungie was better about than arena net because they, they were like, we're going to give you months of notice <laughs> before <laughs> your contract ends. And so I was like, okay, but it, it's still like stressful because you're always like, is this going to be the time where they don't renew me? And the contract there was interesting. It was hard too because the progression made during contract work didn't transfer over when when you did get converted so it was a a tough position to be in but as, as I was doing all this work and I was getting the story characters I didn't know that Chris was actually working with a couple of his buddies and they're working on the prototype and the plan for a game that they wanted to make because VR was new it was just starting to be a thing like I don't think a lot of the headsets were out at that point yeah this is what like probably 2014 2015 maybe i think so like the psvr hadn't come out 
the Oculus headset hadn't come out. Like it, at that point, it was like Jimmy rigged together. <laughs> like, yep. Yep. To a supercomputer. He was working on this game, and they're talking about leaving to create their own company, basically. Okay. And so, like, all this was happening, uh, and like, I, I didn't know about this until like one day when <laughs> he, he started pulling us aside one by one to let us know that like he was gonna leave Bungie for this company that he owned found and i remember him saying like he he loved the the team and all that but like he he had to do it like he had to try this out and i just remember feeling that emotion that you feel when someone you like tells you they're gonna leave it's like you're really happy for him but you're also like really sad so it's like a <laughs> bittersweet right yeah bittersweet you're happy for the person to do the thing they're really passionate about but selfishly you're like yo but you're an awesome lead right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and I, I didn't know at the time but as he was leaving he was basically making sure he was doing what he can so the team was in a good state so he got it so i got converted to full-time Nice. And he got it too, so I wasn't converted as a junior artist. I was converted as an artist. <laughs> so like level two. Yeah. And then he also got it so on top of that, I would be in charge of story characters because he knew how passionate I was about all that. So I, I basically went from like the very beginning of my bunch of career, <laughs> like polishing other people's like civilian NPC work and now I was going to be like in charge of all the story characters for Destiny 2. Your work has paid off. You earned this. You got yourself here because every story you've told me always starts with like so I just worked really hard <laughs> to do the thing. I put all the hours and the time it needed to get the thing done right. And yeah. It, it, it's awesome because it all paid off right? You, yeah. You were recognized and you were given the thing that you really wanted to be doing. And Chris is like one of the first leads to like really recognize that <laughs> and reward it, which was really nice. So it, it was weird because at the same time I was learning like he was leaving. He was telling me like all the stuff he had done too. So it was like, oh man. He's like, I'm leaving, but you're going to be okay. You're set up. You're <laughs> going to be converted. <laughs> Which is how you know he's a good leave. I remember the the last thing we said in that conversation. I was like, okay, well, super happy for you. Super sad to lose you, basically. Thank you for doing all this. And also, as you go on and you form this new company, I just want to say, like, hey, let me know if you're ever hiring. Because I would love to work with you again. That's something that I think catches a lot of people by surprise is normally what drives a lot of us when we first get into this thing is like, ooh, that's the game I want to work on, right? That's mm -hmm. the game I want to bring my whatever talent to. I'm going to go wherever the cool, badass game is. Mm -hmm. And then kind of as you go along, it slowly starts encompassing teammates and people, right? Then, yeah. then it becomes a matter of like, ooh, I want to work with them again, wherever they're going I want to be a part of that team. It's an interesting evolution that happens as you as you navigate the industry, right? Like you learn the project value evolves in a certain direction and then kind of the, the people team dynamic grows in a certain direction too with values. Yeah, 100%. Just like how early in my career, I was so excited about the free food. But now now it's like, who, who am I working with? What is the company culture? That's the important thing. <laughs> yeah, so, so Chris leaves... He co-founds Polyarc, and you're at Bungie working on Destiny 2. Mm -hmm. 
you leave the little message there to be like, hey, let me know whenever mm-hmm. you're, you're growing the team, if you're looking for a character artist. And so at this point, you guys connect at a party or something again? Well, when I let him know, like, hey, let me know if you're hiring because I would love to work with you again. And the reason why I knew there was hope was he was like, oh, yeah, yeah, you would actually be a really good fit for this new company. And I was like, yes, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm still working at work and I'm, again, working really hard. (laughs) (laughs) Working really hard. (laughs) I got the thing. And so like, I got to work even harder now because I'm owning the character. Yeah. And so I'm doing all this stuff. And then in the meanwhile, like we're still like talking. And at one point he's like, hey, hey, Corinne. And because he has this like holiday party where he invites friends over. Like called Crimbus or something. Crimbus, the famous Crimbus. That's right. <laughs> so was that a Crimbus? And I was like catching up with him, and I was like, "Hey, like, how's the company? Like, how's it all going?" And I was there with uh, a few of my other coworkers. I was there with Mike Jensen and James Uborski, who are like two close friends from the Bungie Destiny team. Yeah. And Chris basically was like, "Oh yeah, let, let me show you what we're working on. Can't tell anyone." thing in the industry called the friend DA. Friend DA, the FDA. <laughs> yeah. And so he pulls out his phone and he pulls out these like little concepts. And I just start like, it's in the middle of a crowded party. I just start squealing. Cause I'm like, oh my God, because what he's showing me is like these really adorable like rodents and mouse and armor. And I am just like freaking out because like, when, when they left Bungie to work on VR, everyone assumed it was going to be to make like a, a, a Destiny VR, basically. Naturally, naturally, right? Like when you look at Bungie's repertoire or portfolio, that's all the types of games that they've been working on, right? It's like sci-fi, futuristic, battle kind of warrior games. So naturally, that's that's a perfectly valid assumption. But as it turns out, like first-person shooters, they're really fun on flat screens. We're, we're not ready for them in VR. <laughs> like, they, they don't they don't work in VR. And and so like what they had come up with instead, I, I thought they went about this so smart was they started with the like medium that they wanted to explore. They named off all these things that the medium was good at. They based the design off of that. And then they based the art off of the design. And so that, mm. that's how the like order of operations. So these tiny little adorable like <laughs> creatures in armor were basically based off the fact that they found it was really good to play with like a, a small character on like a diorama level. And then the reason why I was like freaking out especially is because like if I had the chance to like make my own game, it would probably be something like that. <laughs> it was it was something that I, I never thought I would have the opportunity to work on something like this in the game industry. Up, up until this point, it's all been like badass fantasy, badass sci-fi. And then like everything is focused on like, how can we make the player feel like a badass? Yes. And that doesn't leave a, a lot of room for like exploring how to make the player feel other emotions. And so like seeing this and seeing the characters, I was so sold. Because <laughs> first of all, it was, it was Chris. I knew he was a good lead. I wanted yeah. to work with him again. And then it was, it was the concepts he made were just so good. It was like, I want to work on that. <laughs> well, that's usually the two pieces generally, right? I mean, like, I guess there's three pieces, right? There's like the people you're going to work with, the thing you're going to be working on, and then, you know, the compensation, right? Like that. Yeah. That, yeah. Those, those three big pieces, but <laughs> Once you have any two of those, right, it's, it's, it's a pretty compelling case. You, you're willing to sacrifice a little bit on the third piece. 
Yeah, so it was like, I'm sold. And at this point, they were getting their funding. And, and I, I went over, I visited the studio, and the experience was so different from all my previous experiences. Because at this point, like, there was no, I didn't have to prove myself because they already knew. And so, like, they were actually, like, selling the company to me and selling the project to me. For a change. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and also, like, other thing I should mention is my other friends there from the Bungie team, Mike Jensen and James Uvorsky. They also, like, Mike switched over to go work at Polyarch. And then later, James joined. And so, like, not only was it, like, Chris and this, like, awesome project I was super excited about, but it was, like, these were, like, my it's my friends <laughs> from work. I get to, like, work with them on making, like, this really neat project. So, yeah. So then it, it was a no-brainer. I Even though it basically was where I didn't think I would ever get to at Bungie, it was, like, I have to go. I have to, I have to try doing this thing. This is the first time in your career where you have to make the difficult decision to leave a company. Yeah, and it's hard. And like my personality type, I was like, oh, I can't leave until like I set them up for success. Because at that point, I was the only one who knew how player faces worked. I was the only one who knew how to make player hair. <laughs> and Chris and, and Polyarch, to their credit, were like, oh, hey, did you get your bonus from shipping Destiny 2? And I was like, oh, no, not yet. And he's like, don't come over until you get that. You you stay there. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> like, nice. Like he was, he was telling on. me, no, you wait. And I was like, oh, okay, Rick. Thanks, Rick. <laughs> Shipping bonuses are nice. Yeah, which like was an, another nice thing about that I hadn't experienced before. So I, I waited till then, and then I, I shifted over to, to Polyarch, and there was a lot of first here. Like, <laughs> it was my first time working at a small company because at ArenaNet, I think the smallest they were was 200 people. When I started at Bungie, they were at 400 people. And then when I left, they're at 700. And when I started at Polyarch, I think I was the seventh employee. And our office was like, they had rented is across the street from like Pike's Place, which is like awesome location. But it, it basically used to be the storage closet for a larger office. It just happened to have windows. And that's what they rented. And, and it was so funny because they knew they were growing. So they had a lease for a bigger office, but it actually got delayed because they had to like do stuff there. They were apologizing so much, but I, I was excited because I was like, oh, I get to experience like the garage level. Of the- <laughs> oh, the, 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 you know, your mom's garage development. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it was so funny because it was like, 10 of us crammed into this tiny place. To give you an idea of how tiny, like I was sharing my desk with Brendan, one of the engineers. Yeah, shout out to Brendan. I know him. Yeah. (laughs) And Peter, our our CFO. So there's like three people on one desk. (laughs) That's how like scrappy we were. But I was so excited because it was like, you know, it's the first part of a company and like it's when a company becomes what it's going to be like the culture and it's the first time they're making like the game like it was just a really exciting time where they were apologizing but i was super excited about of course <laughs> of course you're, you're loving this you're digging this this is what you signed on for it's like yeah. i want i want the things that you're apologizing for i want, i've never experienced <laughs> i want to experience them i want to be able to tell stories about this because because yeah polyarch has now shifted offices a couple times and they're mm-hmm. going to keep growing so it's awesome when you're in on the ground floor and you can be there for the origin stories. 
Yeah, and another thing I never thought <laughs> I'd do, which is really neat. Yeah, and so we worked together. We worked really hard. We basically created Moss, and it, it was my first time being, because we, we were all character artists. And so, like, we were all learning how to be everything artists because we had to do, like, the effects, the environments, the lighting. Like, we were now learning to do everything, so. And all in Unreal. All in Unreal, which, actually, I'd, like, Unreal was pretty awesome to work. It was my first time, and I was like, oh, this is, (laughs) this is pretty good. It was cool. It was a little bit, like, interesting experience going from, like, I've been making characters for like so many years at this point, like I can make an armor set super quickly and I don't have to like think too hard about it. Cause it's like, you know, muscle memory at this point, yeah. to go to a place where it's like, everything's new. I'm a, now a noob, <laughs> everything. And I'm working my way up. Great opportunity. The game ship, the reception was, was really good. It's a top VR experience to this day for sure. I think recently they said it was top, for PSVR game, or top, it was top four in the top five. Oh, easy, easy. Sorry, Oculus VR game. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, I was about to say, I think the only thing on top of Moss is like what, like Astrobot, just because it's crazy zany gameplay, and then the popular ones, right? Like Beat Saber, Tetris VR, yeah. whatever. But it's such an awesome experience. And, it, and it's one of those things that show people what's possible in VR. I know VR has technically been around for a while, but like we're still figuring out how to make a VR game. And so it's, it's really neat to be at like the forefront of Frontier, like trying to figure it out because everything you do is new. <laughs> everything. Yeah, so worked really hard on, on Moss because we had the extra motivation of we wanted Polyarch to be a success because we liked working there. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted to still exist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the game sold and it actually did well. Like we're, we're still around. We shipped Moss one with 15 people and i think we're currently like between 25 and 30 people so we've expanded quite a bit we moved from the closet office to a much larger much nicer office (laughs) that's like literally across the street from the seahawks stadium which is hilarious to me you guys have pretty awesome views right like whenever the heck you can get back into office these days you have a pretty awesome sunset view the other cool thing that all that kind of lets us do is, well, first of all, we can keep being a company and keep operating. But the, the neat thing is the founders of the company, what they wanted to do was they kind of approached how they did the projects in a different way. And I, I really like their philosophy and goal was that instead of a core group of people being in charge of all the games that we make and having like the same director, like game after game, the idea was that we would cycle in new people to get the experience to get it, which is like such a rare thing and such a cool thing to like make important as a forefront of the company. Mm-hmm. Part of that is the directors that are on Lost One are now like mentors for the new directors on projects. It's really cool because it, it gives an opportunity for growth. Like at, at Bungie, it's like probably not going to become an art director at, at, at Bungie of, of a project there. The neat thing about Polyarc is there was that opportunity. So the crazy thing is that by the time this episode release, I will be an art director on one of the new projects at Polyarc. You did it. You did it. You're going to art direct your own project, Corinne. Which was another thing that I never thought would happen. 
<laughs> I, I think that's a beautiful journey to come to this point, right? You continually surprise yourself and keep crushing your expectations, right? Like you reach a level and you think, okay, I'm, I'm at where I wanted to be. And then lo and behold, there's more to keep climbing and more to keep attaining. And now you get to kind of give back and mentor and lead the art on a team. That's so, so powerful and, and beautiful, right? Like a, a great story I like to tell is the industry is is no joke. It's it's tough, but for the people that can hold on, that know their worth, that work hard, that build relationships, you will do some pretty amazing things like yourself. You're a great testament to that fact, Corin. And I'm so glad you get to share that with people listening to this and people behind you for sure. Congratulations. I know we can keep talking more. <laughs> And all I can say is that we'll definitely bring you back on in the future to talk us through what the life of an art director is like at Polyarch. How do people connect with you or see your work? Ways that people can connect with me in, in my work. I have an art station, as we mentioned. So if you want to see some of my work, you can look me up. I'm Corinne Scrivens on ArtStation. I also have a Twitter and an Instagram where my username is Art of Co. And I also have a website where I have all this information together, which is basically my name, which is very hard to spell. So I, I assume we'll put it in the show notes. We'll link everything in the show notes. <laughs> oh, and the other thing is, if you have access to the GDC vault, I did a GDC talk back when GDC was a thing that people went to called Engaging VR Storytelling, a Moss Postmortem. So if you want to hear more about how the production of Moss went and kind of like our, our learnings from it, that, that's a good talk to listen to. Oh, for sure. We love our GDC talks and GDC vault talks on the show. I'll <laughs> be sure to link that in the notes as well. Thank you so much for your time. Before you go, one last thing we tend to do on here is if you enjoyed your time, would you nominate anyone else to fall out of play area? I really love what you're doing, and there's so many people I want to hear from. I narrowed it down to two people instead of one. I hope that's okay. <laughs> that's all good. That's all good. There's a ton of cool people at Polyarch that you should totally talk to, and they have great stories. But I, I was thinking at this point, you have so many Polyarch contacts that I kind of wanted to pull from somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, I like that strategy. The first person is someone I worked with at ArenaNet back when I was new and I was still figuring everything out. Like his name is Donald Pham. He's an awesome character artist, and and he's also like one of the most self-deprecating people that I know. So uh, I will say don't don't believe him. He's he's awesome. He's really great at what he does. And the reason why I was excited to nominate him is because basically has like a really interesting like career path. And he's actually gone on to do like he's done freelance and he's done teaching, which are both things that I know people in the industry think about doing. And as a teacher, he probably has a lot of really good insight for students. Yeah. Um, I want to join the industry. And currently he creates characters for Overwatch is what he does currently. Oh, so he's at Blizzard. Uh, yeah. And I think he has a lot of interesting stories to tell. 
and he's gonna hate me for saying this, but you should totally ask him why he's famous in the Dota community. <laughs> Ooh, okay. We love those little inside gems around here. The second person I want to recommend is someone that I worked really closely with at Bungie, and her name is Natalie Burke, and she's really awesome. I'm excited to recommend her because she's a tech artist and that's something that people outside the industry don't really know what that is. So I think it'd be really good to highlight that. And tech art's one of those interesting things where they need to have both the artistic and the technical. So it's like a rare breed of person that can Mm -hmm. do that. And a good tech artist, they're like the support class of the game development MMO where like having a good tech artist around just increases the productivity of all the disciplines around them. And Natalie is definitely a good tech artist. And I think she'd be great to talk to because she worked with me at Bungie. She also went over to Unity. So she's experienced the the game engine side of game development. And she actually recently moved to Amsterdam and she's now working at Guerrilla Games as like a lead technical artist. So I think she'll also have insight into what's it like working internationally and moving internationally for a job. Oh, that's super exciting, Corinne. Like, I look forward to getting to know Donald, right? Like, I think Overwatch mm-hmm. characters, just the style and everything. I think there's a lot to take away there. Now that I know a little bit more of what goes into character art, thanks to you. <laughs> I might have some intelligent questions to ask Donald. And, you know, as a tech designer, I have so much love and admiration and appreciation for the tech artists, right? A lot of people, I I, I can empathize completely what it's like living in the space between engineering and another discipline and playing that support class role, right? And the fact that she's done games, worked on engine, and is now probably on some Horizon sequel of some sort, that's going to (laughs) be awesome to talk to for sure, right? Like, just building open world systems or helping game development illusion and and bag of tricks grow, right? Like how do you make these bigger, better worlds with kind of all these constraints that we have, even on PlayStation 5, which apparently has like unlimited memory. Corinne, thank you so much. It's been an absolute blast having you on the show. Do you have any closing words for the listeners out there? Just for you. Thank you for having me. This was super fun. Dig it. Thank you again. Have a good one. Thanks. Goodbye. (laughs) Corinne's laughter is contagious, isn't it? What do you all think about her journey? I find her drive exhilarating. From that crazy commute she endured on her internship with Neversoft, and then how she was constantly working outside of work on her personal time to level up and gain those skills that employers in the game industry were looking for even though resources were scarce. As a designer on my free time, yeah, sure, I play games and I'm always kind of subliminally analyzing what they're doing, but it's never like I really break down systems as encounters down on paper, unless I have a system that I'm trying to build. Her stories kind of remind me of my old roommate in Encinitas, Marcellus Barnes, this amazing modeler and character artist that I hope to invite on the show one day. And you know, reminds me that he was actually nominated by Benja in episode two. So I do plan on hitting him up. I really like the concept of those speed sculpt lunch crunches with her team of artists that they would do. It makes me actually miss being in an office where we would get together, play games, do some competitive analysis or get hands on with anything. If you're an artist and you're looking for work or working on your portfolio, 
I really think her portfolio tips are worthwhile. And I don't want to speak for her, but I'm sure she'd be willing to review your portfolio if you hit her up. I've included links to her website, her art station, and her LinkedIn below in the show notes, in addition to her GDC talk. Check them out. I can never get enough postmortems, especially for Moss. Oh, which reminds me, have you guys seen the Moss 2 announcement? I'm ready. I can't wait to see what they cooked up for the sequel. On the next episode of Out of Play Area, the Game Developers Podcast, debuting Monday, August the 2nd, we'll bring on my Quebecois homie from Warner Brothers Games, Montreal, Nicolas Montaillet, Le Incréable, senior combat designer currently working on Gotham Knights, who goes in on his background working at Ubisoft and then onto combat systems for Warner. On this one, we're going to geek out on combat design trends, tropes, and systems. So it'll be a bit of a different flavor that I look forward to seeing what you all think. As always, devs, I'm your host, John Diaz. I'll see you on the next Out of Play Area episode. Hopefully, I see you at GDC. And until then, stay strong, stay true, stay dangerous. Mega Ran, taking the church. We out! Fight attendants, prepare for takeoff. Captain crew, please take your seats. We are now about to enter the out-of-play area. Yeah. If you can't reach me, I apologize. Since we out of play, I never compromise. John D, NYC, know we got the vibe. Make sure you hit that follow when you hit subscribe. Out-of-play area podcast. Out-of-play, out-of-play.